This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And back in studio, long awaited, our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. Uh, Mike, Yay. we, we Thanks for letting you. me back in. <laughs> we, we would never dream of locking the studio doors against you. So this week, we're going to be sharing an interview that Richard did with Alex Ross Perry, the director of the new movie Her Smell, which has a pretty uh, fearless and phenomenal performance from Elizabeth Moss. Uh, but then the big topic of the week, I think, in the entire world is Game of Thrones, the return of the biggest show on television and the end of it and what TV is going to be like uh, after it's gone. But first, we have some really important business to take care of. Mike, you set out the episode where we stuck our necks out and predicted this year or next year's Best Picture winner. You're not going to get away with sitting this out. Uh, Mike, what's going to win Best Picture in 2020? Well, I don't think it's going to be us because it's just <laughs> like it can't you can't do that thing in two years in a row. Mm-hmm. And then I don't think it's going to be The Irishman because I'm really very concerned about The Irishman, frankly. And it has a but Netflix problem. CGI de-aging doesn't appeal you to you? You mean the state of The Irishman yeah. in general? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a perennial concern Correct. for me. Uh, Once Upon in Hollywood, I don't think Quentin is going to like – quite figure out 2019 not to say that green book quite figured out 2019 uh the goldfinch i just didn't like that book as much as i wanted to and i feel like it has a little it reminds me of some other sort of ambitious things that didn't make sense i think it's gonna be cats i think it's gonna <laughs> That's a i would brave. love this Rob, tom hooper um what my formative i think oscar campaign that i watched up close was the year that Les Miserables was in there with all kinds of Zero Dark Thirty. That was like a crazy year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Argo, I guess, won, right? Yeah. And I feel like uh, Tom Hooper really wanted it then, and uh, I don't know. I love Cats. You know, I watched, uh, I saw Cats as a kid, and I listened to the record on vinyl. Mm-hmm. It is really weird. It's about cats. <laughs> it is totally about cats. I don't know. Well, I have if no Lady idea. Gaga is, is in a, a Best Picture winner from this past year, then Taylor Swift should be in a Best Picture winner, or not a Best Picture it's nominee anyway. Only fair. An Oscar winner. Yeah. It's only fair. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. And, and Jennifer just, Hudson. The Lion King's going to get nominated, and then Beyonce can be in one too, and it'll just oh, be yeah. good times. Oh, good. We'll, we'll relitigate Beyonce versus uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> That's we're definitely doing that in the original song category. But That's also, happening. Like, oh. Remember, Jesus Christ Superstar was, was actually bizarrely good. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's proof that like an Andrew Lloyd Webber thing that's bizarre can sort of exist in the late 20 teens. Totally. I don't know. 
I don't know. This is what I'm really excited about. I'm like a cusp Gen X millennial, but like I'm kind of a Gen Xer and I'm really excited for Mike Hogan and I to bond over the fact that we are two people who actually like cats in yeah. this season. Because I feel be like I've alone. seen I've seen so many people being like, uh, cats, what it like trying to pretend that cats wasn't like enormously popular and beloved. They're like, what is this crazy musical? I'm like, maybe crazy, but a lot of people loved it. So let's you, just calm down. Do you remember the ad where the old lady was like, I laughed, I cried, it became a part of me? <laughs> remember that? <laughs> I don't know if I that's think that probably was airing like a when local, I moved to New York in the mid 2000s. That might be a tri state area uh, <laughs> thing. Anyway, now and forever. I have no idea what's going to win. And that woman was Glenda Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about something that we know will win some awards this year, at least as we discussed last week. Uh, we think will. Game of Thrones is coming back for its final season. It will be eligible for this year's Emmys, and we can get into kind of its awards prospects later on and what we see it really competing for. Um, but I think what's interesting about this is not just that it's back and we want to talk about what's going to happen and who's going to live and who's going to die, but that this is truly the end of an era for a certain kind of TV. And Mike, you were at the big uh, premiere of the first episode at Radio City Music Hall last week. Did it have that kind of like end of fall of Rome feel to it? It did, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> And it's interesting because they had the rumor that I heard was that they had the premiere for 5,000 people and then the party for like, you know, 800 or something, which felt like a very post-Plepler thing. I feel like Plepler would have had a premiere for 1,000 people and a party for 3,000 people. But this is now mm -hmm. the AT&T era where they're actually like spending dollars, you know, in what is ostensibly, a, you know, a kind of more pragmatic way. So it's like, let's let people go in there, but we don't need to serve them all drinks. There were no drinks, which was, was its own issue. There was popcorn and water. I guess there's usually not drinks at these things. At the screening, I mean, at not the, at the party. At the premiere. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I assume there were. I wasn't invited to the party. Um, so this is just about you not getting invited. I get it. No, it's not, you know, but anyway. <laughs> but, um, it, yeah, I mean, I think we were kind of, everyone was sort of talking about why this is likely to not happen again and one of them is how many how many series debuted the year that game of thrones did probably a few dozen and now every year it's going to be a few hundred at least right and so the, just the sheer competition we were also kind of talking and and you guys probably know better than me i was trying to remember when did game of thrones make the kind of quantum leap from like a thing that a bunch of sort of fantasy fans and hbo completists we're really into to like the world crushing juggernaut of pop culture. I feel like it was season three. Yeah, I know when it was. You do. Was it the it, Red Wedding? What it was was the Red Wedding happened. Those viral reaction videos happened, and um, executive producer Brian Cogman told me that the next day, when you went onto iTunes, the number one downloaded thing on iTunes the day after the Red Wedding was a season one episode one Winter is Coming. So, oh. like, the Red Wedding happens, there's wow. this viral online reaction, and then the next day a bunch of people are like, oh, I got to catch up with whatever this is. So, um, the, and then if you look at the ratings, I mean, it, it grew. It was a thing, you know, it grew from season to season, but there is, a, like, a huge leap from three to four. So season four, which is when I started at VF and covering for VF, is when it really started to, like, kick off into that larger stratosphere. And then I think at the end of season five, when Jon Snow temporarily died, <laughs> that that kicked it up into an even higher sort of um, sphere. Okay. Yeah, because when I was at HuffPost for season 
beginning of season three, and Ariana was basically like, you're the entertainment editor, you need to be recapping Game of Thrones. And I was like, okay, I guess so. And I went back and watched it. And and that was the season where like HBO was playing ball with us because they were still had something to gain. And I like had the banked interview with the actress who played Catelyn Stark for The Red Wedding. You know, wow. like yeah. I'd seen it in advance. Like it's just it's hilarious to imagine that they would anything show like that, that now. In yeah, advance, they were like, like, sure, you can watch it. Yeah. You know, we'll get we'll get. Uh, now, so and and now they've gotten to the point where Mike has a little red you know laser dot on his forehead because someone outside because <laughs> they shoot him if he mentions <laughs> anything about what happens exactly. in the season premiere. Exactly. Well, yeah. We got screeners for season four. The, those are the only screeners I ever got because that was my first year of VF, and so I was like important enough to get screeners. And I got screeners for season four of Game of Thrones, and then a bunch of those leaked online, uh, not through me, <laughs> through someone. <laughs> and then they stopped giving out screeners at all for the show. Um, yeah. I, I just want to say really quickly, if you're listening to this podcast, this is the Vanity Fair Game of Thrones dream team that you're listening to right here. Mike Hogan was at the premiere. Mike Hogan and I started like work, writing about Game of Thrones on Vanity Fair together. He is back for the final season to recap episodes. I'm so excited for our yeah, Sunday the, nights. And the dynamic is Joanna knows everything and I know nothing. <laughs> so if you're like kind of a just, you know, don't really know what the hell's going on, then you can share my bewilderment and then go read all of, all of Joanna's articles and you then you'll know what's going on. Yeah. Um, Richard and I are doing the Still Watching podcast where we've been like re-watching episodes uh, for, you know, weeks now, feels like years, our 15 top episodes, have a bunch of interviews going on there. So we'll be talking about it over on the Still Watching podcast. And then Katie Rich is like my... My Tyrion Lannister, my whatever, my rock <laughs> when I do Game Hand of Thrones of coverage. Joanna. Yeah, she is on with me on Sunday nights and she is just there and she's like, when she's like confused about something and asks me a question, that's how I know that I need to write about it for you guys to understand. So anyway, this is, this is it. This is the team. And Mike has even seen the episode and I know some things but won't talk about them and it's going to be like, it's going to be great. So here we go. Well, the other fun thing that happened and maybe it's worth talking about a little is when the series moved past the books then it became that both of us at the beginning of the episode didn't know anything right. and then joanna would actually understand every single easter egg and i would still be baffled at the end and then you know but 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 at least there wasn't this kind of like yes i know what the next five episodes are going to mm -hmm. be because i've read you know all the books five times um yeah. so it's interesting yeah the rise of like explainer culture, like that mm -hmm. that Thrones has to increasingly depend on this thing that Marvel Studios depends on that I that, you know, I like to call and I'm sure many people like to call explainer culture, which is just a bunch of nerds like me and other people going along <laughs> being like, well, actually, this is what this is a reference to, you know, like, and, and people you like me leaving the theater and Googling it, uh, Avengers end credit scene explain because yeah, I'm not yeah. sitting next to someone who can tell me who Thanos is at the end of the Avengers. I need someone to like, I need you to do it when I Google. So, I'm your friendly neighborhood nerd friend. Um, <laughs> I did, I did want to say really to Mike's earlier point about the end of an era. I want to give credit and I've been doing this, you know, I've been interviewed a couple places about like, what does it mean? The end of game of Thrones. And, uh, I've been giving credit to Matt Lynch who, uh, like two years ago, I want to say maybe even three had a conversation with me about how like the end of Thrones meant the end of the monoculture. And I was just like, Oh, uh, okay. And I've been thinking about it for years because Matt Lynch like planted that in my head. And um, and now like Matt Zoller Seitz wrote this article on Vulture this week that's like, hey, did you notice that it's the end of monoculture? And I was like, yeah, I've been <laughs> noticing. So um, here we are at the Do end of it all. Do we 
so the, I did want to talk about that if we if we fully buy the idea that Game of Thrones is the end of monoculture. I think it definitely is the end of like this particular kind of TV show and all the culture that grew up around it that we're talking about. But we're also only a couple weeks removed from the release of Us, which is a movie that obviously everyone felt compared to go see opening weekend and talk about, and Avengers Endgame is not far behind it. So I, I get that it's going to change a lot in TV, but I'm not totally sure I think this is the last thing that everyone will want to talk about at the same time. Well, I think that we're going to keep talking about things at the same time. I think the question is, can we sustain that conversation for eight years? You know, mm. um, that's something that remains to be seen. I think that even, I mean, we're going to have more hit shows. It's going to happen. You know, Big Little Eyes season two is on its way. Like things, you know, things are maybe his dark materials, which HBO is going to debut this year and other things. But will that conversation dry up after a second season? You know, because you really have to, you know, you know, when you're pitching a TV show, a lot of times you'll write a treatment, which is like a really detailed description of not just the pilot episode, but of several seasons of the show. So what a network would have to find or Netflix or who or Apple you know, TV or whatever would have to find is the show that says, but wait, at the end of season three, this enormous thing's going to happen that then's going to, you know, you know, then it's going to have people like salivating for the next couple seasons, which Game of Thrones had because the books were written, you know, so I don't know yeah. if that book series is out there. But um, I have faith in the sort of communal experience of being alive that we will not just all sort of wander away from each other at the end of Game of Thrones. But um, it well, yeah, and I think the whole—I mean, remember the whole idea that the long tail culture was going to mean that a, a million things were going to be micro-famous and almost nothing was going to be big. And part of it turned out to be true, but it also turned out that there's always room for like an, a thank you next Ariana Grande moment for that everyone can kind of participate in. But I think you're right, like the duration of that. And really, does it, I feel like Game of Thrones may be the last one that crossed basically every generation, like any kind of uh, demographic thing you can think, I think of. Yeah, it's a big one. And, yeah. it, and it actually, one of the things that's interesting going back and, and watching it from the beginning is it really is kind of a product of a complacent Obama era where people are like, things are pretty fine. Like, let's watch a weird show about dragons with where like a bunch of women like get their naked breasts out and like there's all kinds of weird like it's 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 a problematic fave actually when you go back to the beginning, but it was just fun and and it was an era where you could maybe like feel less bad about having that sort of like guilty pleasure fun. I don't know. That that's yeah. what strikes me going back to it. So so things have changed a lot. One thing that was cool at the premiere, I can't talk about what happened on screen, but was that there was a bunch of stuff that I wouldn't have thought to laugh at that people in the audience were laughing at. And I was like, wow, that really is funny. There's all, there, mm -hmm. it, I realized one of the things that seems to have happened is when they went off the books, arguably some of the dialogue started getting corny. But it also it also works in this communal environment where you're all sitting around and people are th like zinging each other with one-liners that you don't necessarily think of coming out of George R. R. Martin's you know typewriter or whatever, but that work. And then I, I realized that there were some characters and and ongoing things that I had taken rather seriously you know at home alone, and people around me are cracking up and I'm like this show is funnier than I realized. Like I hadn't actually gone explored all of the the camp potential of it. Uh, and there is a lot of camp stuff, actually, in it. For sure. 
They should do like the Marvel marathons and then just show all of Game of Thrones in a movie theater for four days and uh, let you experience among I, people. I mean, I'm sure they will, right? And and uh, and that's something that you guys have been great on is, uh, too on the site is just like this is actually just the beginning. Like, there's going to be a billion. You know, this is like the end of the original. Um, three Star Wars movies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, HBO's not just to be like, well, we're done. Right. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, how bullish are we feeling about the, you know, not just the Game of Thrones spinoffs that are to come, which I believe we don't really know the details of, but you mentioned His Dark Materials is coming. Amazon's doing Lord of the Rings. Like, do we do we feel like any of them really have the potential to capture even some of the Game of Thrones appeal? I don't think, here's, here's, here's what I think is the actual... Um, real issue of what's going forward. And I don't mean to be demon gloom. Like, we'll have plenty to talk about. This is, Please keep coming to VanityFair.com. We'll still have things to write about. But, um, you know, with, with Lord of the Rings, with His Dark Materials, with Wheel of Time that Amazon is developing, with In the Name of the Wind that Showtime is developing, all of those things, um, a lot of them certainly the Amazon properties are going to be dropped on the binge model. And the binge model just means that once again, we're not talking about things at the same time. We're not watching them at the same time and we're not watching them week to week. And the, what HBO is doing, you know, cause HBO is doing his dark materials is like a co-production with BBC, right? What HBO is going to be doing, uh, they said in an interview is increase their uh, programming by 50% this year, alone. And so it's going to become, you know, more and more like Netflix in that there's just going to be too much to watch. So how can we all just like press pause and focus on one thing for two months? Um, you know what I mean? When, when our attention span, like, yes, everyone went to go see us, but are we still talking about us right now? A couple weeks later? Not really, you know, not, I don't, that's not a knock on us, but like, it's not the same as having a sustained conversation about one cultural thing for many months at a time. Yeah, and, and I think the joy of that is something that we kind of discount. Like, Game of Thrones can be exhausting, and it's violent, and uh, as Mike was talking about, it's kind of, like, had to evolve in its uh, views on a lot of things. But I really love having, like, a weekly appointment with yeah. not just the TV show, but, like, the everyone on my Twitter feed or the people who I'm going to see the next day. Like, the idea of having that thing that you all experience, like, the Oscars are that in some way, um, but a, a show that does that, Game of Thrones really is the last one that has that kind of, like, weekly ritual attached to it. Yeah, and I think the other thing about, you know, uh, Wheel of Time or Lord of the Rings or already, you know, we've seen shows come and go like the Shannara Chronicles or Chronicles of Shannara, the Bastard Executioner, you know, beware the pale imitator. You know, people are not so easily sort of like, oh, this is kind of like that thing. I'm going to watch it. You know, like look at all the yeah. shows that kind of crashed and burned, uh, <laughs> pun intended, sort of uh, after Lost, you know, like like so many one season shows trying to capture that same sort of zeitgeisty energy. And it's really hard to do, not just because, you know, it's hard to recreate a sort of singularly good idea, but also, you know, audiences are sort of skeptical of it. So I think that the next great monoculture tune in every week kind of thing is going to be in a totally different genre. I think it's, you know, who knows what, but... Um, you know, there are many different ways to offer people an escape into a, a world that it does not resemble our own. So uh, I'm curious what it'll be, but I don't think it will be any of these sort of shows that are trying to draft off of Game of Thrones as success. Dan and David were talking about this a little bit at the premiere, but like, it's very clear that there was no way to predict that this would have all turned out the way that it turned out. You know, I mean, they they, it, they must have had hopes of a great success, but not like this thing. Like, no. this is really, it's, it's the, I mean, it, it's like the 
most dominant thing in our pop culture, maybe at least on TV. I, I would. Of? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and especially because it has by, the inter- by far it has the international yeah. pull. You know. You know. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. you know. You like. We talked about it, I think, Joanna, you and I on Still Watching, or maybe on this podcast, but, like, how, like, the city of Dubrovnik in Croatia has been, like, had a whole economy because of, like, right. Game of Thrones, you know, location tours or whatever. I'm sure the same is true of Belfast to some extent, you know? Yep. Like, this thing is just everywhere, and, um, you know, I don't know how else you do that. Um, I was actually talking to, um, on, on the Still Watching podcast, I was interviewing the production designer, Deb Riley, whose job is to, like, location scout. And I asked her, I was like, do tourism bureaus did they email you before seasons and be like, have you considered Switzerland? <laughs> and she was like, she was basically like, yup. Yeah, <laughs> so of course. Like, you know? Um, so, yeah. I mean, Dubrovnik basically kicked Game of Thrones out. They were overrun. And that's why, like, you'll you'll see some stuff in the final season set at King's Landing. Uh, but they were not allowed to shoot in Dubrovnik, so they had to recreate Dubrovnik in Belfast, basically. I think it was in Belfast or in Spain, but like they had to rebuild their set that because they were basically kicked out of the country because it's overrun with uh, tourists and attention and all. Like they couldn't handle the amount of um, attention they got out of hosting Game of Thrones. Well, there, so. poor Croatia uh, is not a stranger to that. There's a fascinating New Yorker article from years ago that people should read if they're curious, and it's basically about how this one season side town in Croatia got so overwhelmed by British like stag we- lads weekend that like everyone moved out of town and just came in to work at the bars and then left and like basically gave like ceded the town to the British tourists. It's fascinating and horrifying. So I, I-, I can understand Croatia's sensitivity to being like, all right, we've had enough. Leave. Like, Get out. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and so and another thing that, uh, you know, like Mike was at the premiere and that's that's like I, I was so interested to hear Mike's like uh, feelings around the premiere and being there and stuff like that. The other interesting thing I think about that big, pre- you know, they did a Radio City Music Hall. They didn't do it in L.A. like they usually do it. They like they really splashed out. Uh, there was a giant thrones in, in Rockefeller uh, Plaza and stuff like that. Um, and they had most of the cast there. I mean, I, I don't think Amelia Clark was there. There were one or two other main people who weren't there. But like. It was, Amelia was there. I, Lena Headey wasn't there because she oh, sorry, was like sick. Or sorry, yeah, Lena yeah. Headey wasn't there. But like it will, it reminded me of like being a kid when you uh, took all of your like Star Wars figures and laid them out <laughs> <laughs> across yeah. the stage of Radio City yeah. Music Hall. I was like, holy smokes! Like they yeah, were all there. All the dead people. Sean Bean was Sean there. Bean. Everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but I think like, also there's a symbol, the symbolism of. Radio City Music Hall is a few blocks north of HBO's, you know, headquarters in New York. You yes. know, so I think they were like, "This is our turf. Like we're we're bringing this home for the one last thing." You know, I think yeah. there was a sort of a, a kind of HBO specific branding there there with the location. It also started a full damn hour late because the red carpet took so Great. long, as you can imagine. I'm sorry, Joanna, I inter- interrupted you. No, 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 no. Um, that that was a great point. But the um, the people who were there who work on the show who were maybe like burnt out from all the work they put into the final season, or you know any number of other things, got reinvigorated by seeing all those people there who were excited, seeing the enormous throw. You know, they were like, I was feeling disconnected from this all. Like, and we finished shooting, and it was sort of over. I was talking to Paula Fairfield, who does the sound on the show, and she was just she's like she works on her own in her own house out of her own studio, and she like. Like, you know, she's been isolated and just like making dragon noises and like doesn't wasn't really connected to the larger thing. And then you get to go to this thing and just see like, wow, what an impact your, you know, silly dragon noise job or whatever has had on 
people. Like it, it, the story is so important to people. It's so it's so fascinating well, to me. And my friend um, Margaret, who came as my plus one, she was she is like a political person, and so she's like, so who was here? What is this? And I was like. I think it's the people who worked on the show are like filling a huge portion of this audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who've worked on that thing. And it was cool that Dan Weiss said in their remarks beforehand, um, he was like, this is the last time, that, you know, he said, this is bittersweet because we're really excited to be here. But this is really very likely the last time we're all going to be in one place. Um, so it, it really is. I mean, they understandably, they were they were aware of the momentousness of the occasion um and and, you know and rightly so i mean no one they they were saying like we'll never experience anything like this and and how could they i don't i don't think you ever could yeah apparently they're yeah apparently their um slogan for the season was we'll never see it's like again or something like that as they were making it which is a little slightly self-important but like it's also true i know you you can't you want to be like come on guys but then you're like well no you're right actually there's nothing to really say about it I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. So, Mike, you've seen the first episode and aren't going to spoil it for anybody, so I don't think anyone should be concerned. But I wanted to talk like generally about what we feel like is going to come out of this last season, less plot-wise, at least for now. And, like, do we feel like they can live up to all of this? Like, is this final season going to send it off in the way that everyone is expecting, which seems kind of impossible given how many people have so many hopes pinned on it? Well, my my thing, and we again, we talked about this on Still Watching, um, so if you want more of that, listen to that. Um, but is the my understanding is that at some meeting years ago, George R. R. Martin, the author of the book series, told Benioff and Weiss how it was going to end, you know. And obviously, at the time, the hope was that he would have published the last two books in the series, and so they'd have all that to work off. Obviously, that didn't happen. But my understanding is still that they are working toward the ending that George R. R. Martin has in mind, which, you know, for however many you know, depending on your 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 opinion on it, like narrative missteps the show made once they ran out of book material, they at least have this original thing to return to. So that gives me hope. I don't know how they're going to get there or what that ending is, but I, I like that Martin is sort of at the center of, of this finale. Although <laughs> George R. R. Martin, as much as we all exalt him, um, he has completely like frozen and has been unable to write the last two books. So on the other hand, he might not be that good at endings. We don't know. We will, we will find out. <laughs> um, but I do think, I, I feel like, you know, if you're, I will say this. I think it's going to be a continuation of last season, which I think was great in many ways. You know, the plot started hustling along. Um, and and But it also has this slightly different, I think, tone and vibe than, than it did when they were following the books. Um, and it is hard to imagine, having seen the first hour, that they're going to wrap this all up in like six more hours, but um, 
But wasn't aren't the episodes like an hour and a half long at least after the first one? Eventually, yeah. I think the first few are are under an hour actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, what do you think, Joanna? I want to know what Joanna thinks. <laughs> um, I agree with you about about sort of the like um, you know Martin. I, I don't think that Martin it has an issue knowing how to end a story well, because each of his books end with this like tremendous amount of like, what? Um, but I think he's got lost a little bit on the way of like trying to reach that end goal. And that's why you, that's why you see the show. Well, why some Benioff and their writers decide to do is like, okay, we just need to end this thing. And that's why you see a lot of what Martin did stripped out in the final seasons. And it's just like efficient and big things happen. And maybe everything that happens doesn't make sense character wise. And you lose a lot of that texture um, as they sort of try to hone it back down to the ending. Whereas Martin's mistake, I would say with respect that he made was to expand and expand and expand. And then got it, it got so sprawling that he couldn't bring it back. And so the things that you see in the adaptive changes from the book to the show is like Weiss and Benioff making these executive decisions that they had to make of like, okay, we've heard the ending. Guess what? This little journey over to Dorne doesn't really matter to the ending. So we're going to strip it out or this doesn't really matter. So we're going to strip it out. And that, um, you know, your mileage may vary on all of that, but at least they're going to be able to end it. Um, I have heard from, people who know how it ends that uh whatever you feel about the ending and and i think they're all well aware that like you know let lost be our guide again like you can't end something this big without at least some people being very disappointed in it right like that's Mm -hmm. just going to happen and they're like fully clear-eyed aware of it I think what we won't be able to accuse them of is of um, not really going for it, not really going for it in the spirit of like the way the show started. And so I think that like what happens is going to like upset people (laughs) in a way that I find so interesting. We're not going to get John and Daenerys and, you know, their baby um, live happily ever after, you know, uh, like in a kingdom in the sky or something like that, like something a big is going to happen that is going to make people have to reckon with this, what the show has always been since the minute it chopped off Sean Bean's head in season one or pushed Bran out the window in the first episode. Yeah. Yeah. Or pushed or, or introduced, you know, twin siblings who have sex openly all the time, (laughs) you know, like that's what this show is. It has that darkness. And so for whatever it's become in the last few seasons in terms of like, wow, sick dragons, bro, like whatever that is, there's also this other thing that I, that has popped up a few times when they've hit these things that Martin told them were true. Like Shireen being burned is something that Martin told him that he planned to do the, the like young Stannis's young daughter or Hodor, the way that Hodor died. That's something that Martin told him about. So every time it's like a Martin thing, I feel like you can like really feel it. Cause you're like, oof, yeah, yeah. That's a Martin thing. The fact that like Jon Snow and Daenerys are related, that's a Martin thing, you know? And so like, there's, there's at least one more thing coming that I think people are going to be like, uh, wow. Wow. Well, I you mean, know, and, 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 yeah. not giving nothing away, but like in the previously on Game of Thrones, when you see that zombie dragon like burn <laughs> down the wall, you're like, holy smokes. Like the stakes are <laughs> yeah. extremely high. We are doomed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my big question is that at the end, when Daenerys is walking triumphantly down the streets of Manhattan, if she's going to look at her cell phone and it's going to reveal the Night King's name. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, I think 
I think there's going to be a lot of that. Exactly what you're talking about, Mike. That like big the ice dragon melts a wall. There's these. They've been promised. This is not a spoiler to say they've been promising these big spectacles. They're doing a 90, 70 minute war movie in episode three. They've talked about that all up and down everywhere. You know, didn't like they spend like yeah. thirty days filming that one 50, episode? 50, 55 night shoots and like <laughs> oh, the, enti- the entire production runtime on season two of Game of Thrones was a hundred days. They spent fifty five night shoots on this one battle uh, in episode three. And like, and that's not even the only battle in the final season. So they're making these war movies, but I'm just saying like, my hope is in addition to war movies with dragons and like, obviously a bunch of our faves dying, of course they're going to die. Like they've got, what they've got is this whole roster of B players. Think about like Sir Davos, Sir Jorah, the Hound, Beric, Gendry, Pod, blah, blah, blah. These are all B players, but we've, been with them for so long that like oh them, god de- pod them, i didn't yeah. even think about pod i'm so worried them, about him yeah. i know no, them it's, dying it's, is 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 going to be as big as like ned stark dying in season one was for us do you know yeah. what i mean like well, one they, thing you, had, one thing i think you notice in that in that first episode is how many f despite all of the destruction how many of your faves are still around yeah, yeah. you know right. that gives them a lot of stuff to work with um frankly yeah, all these people who you know have like are not likely to play a key role in the way the final battle goes, or right. sit on the Iron Throne. But like Pod, like I'm gonna be pretty bummed if they if they hurt Gilly though. I'm gonna be so furious. She Protect- does not deserve to have anything bad happen to her. Let her and little Sam live in peace. Protect Gilly and her baby. I mean that I think that was one of the big criticism or a criticism that I had, I guess, of one of their big episodes last season was this one called Beyond the Wall, where like a bunch of our heroes go north of the wall, uh, and a bunch of stuff happens, and we lose a dragon but like seven of our heroes go north of the wall six came back and like really the seventh which was thoros of mir like you know our our friend and colleague matt lynch calls him like i don't know top not priest or something like he didn't really even have a name that people cared about but like uh, the they had literal red shirts with them in that episode they had literal wildlings with them that they just used as cannon fodder in like that episode Okay, what if that, but with characters you've been with for, for a decade? That's what the final season gets to be, and um, and that's. I'm just saying. I hope that's not all it is, because that is that is an easy layup on the table of like things that they can do is kill your faves. But I think, and I hope that there's going to be something even more like morally murky and fun uh, for us to play with here. Yeah, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, in rewatching some episodes in in, in preparation for the premiere is like it's so rare on Game of Thrones that you have any moments of peace or happiness or whatever. And that can get kind of like uh, exhausting, especially, you know, like you've mentioned, Mike, that show premiered in a very different American reality than it is right now. So I'm just curious what sort of mood will, will sort of prevail towards the end of the, of the, you know, the finale, like, will there be happiness? Will it be troubled with worry for the future? You know, I think the show is so much about history and about how things repeat themselves. So I don't think it's going to be a, you know, everyone walks off into the sunset and the end credits roll kind of thing. But I'm hoping maybe naively for at least maybe some of those ancillary characters that there's like some grace note of like good feeling at the end of it. Cause I'll be kind of bummed if it's all just like dark and, you know, um, tragic in a way. 
Yeah, like the same way for you that it doesn't seem like it could all be a happy ending. I also can't imagine it being like, well, the Night King wins and the world <laughs> right. is overrun with zombies. Like that that feels also too nihilistic. Well, it's not going to be a documentary, yeah. Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what if it's zombie Cersei uh, oh, there, I mean, is that, in charge at the very that end? That would be kind of a yes. That's <laughs> a happy ending, though. Cersei becomes the Night Queen would like really do it for me, honestly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The uh, <laughs> here's here's some things I will say without any spoilers. I promise. Um, something that George R. R. Martin has said for years is that the tone of his ending is uh, the word he used is bittersweet, and the comparison that he uses for that is the ending of Lord of the Rings, where like your your heroes win. If you recall at the end of Return of the King, like your heroes win. But Frodo has to sail off on the ship to the grave. How, how nerdy do I sound right now? Frodo oh, no, has to sail this. off on his ship. He has to say goodbye to Sam. Sam gets to live happily ever after the Shire. But Frodo has to go burdened with like purpose or whatever off on the ship to like live with the elves because he no longer belongs to the realm of men. Um, and so it's this like separation, this cost. What is the cost of your happy ending? And so like that's the he mentioned specifically that ending, Frodo going to the Grey Havens as like the tone that he's shooting for for his ending. And then HBO, all the people involved in the show have picked up that word and have just said, bittersweet, 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 bittersweet. The other thing we know is that George R. R. Martin's last book is called A Dream of Spring. I will plunk all my money down um, right now and tell you that I think the finale, what's crazy is we don't know any of the episode titles of the final season of Game of Thrones, not even the premiere that literally thousands of people watched. Um, I bet you the finale is called A Dream of Spring. That's my guess. I mean, the idea of a Frodo-style ending, like, that sounds like a happy ending for Game of Thrones. Like, if someone gets to, like, sail off and live in elf heaven, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, but he has to, like, but, like, Sam is weeping, saying goodbye to Frodo. Like, it's, you know, it's poignant. Samwell Tarly, get ready. you got heartbreak <laughs> coming your way. Uh, okay, so before we move on from Game of Thrones, does anyone have any, like, I, I don't want them to touch Gillies. Anyone have any, like, red lines for this season of either please kill this person or please make this happen? I mean, you brought up Pod already. Um, I'm hoping Gendry's okay. I I think it's more for me less about, like, who lives and more about who sort of has a moment of triumph, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, my theory is that Sansa is going to end up on the throne at the end. I think she's going to be sort of the, 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 the kind of consensus pick in some ways. for to, to, and, and I think that would be good because I think that her character has endured so much uh, throughout the run of the show, and Sophie Turner's been so good at it, even though she's been handled really a lot of tough stuff. Um, so that's where my investment lies. I also am, have become totally addicted to the theory that um, Cersei and Jamie are going to kill each other. Yeah, I saw that theory pop up on Twitter, and I totally bought in. You've never heard that before, Katie Rich? I failed you. Listen, Joanna, I forgot that Littlefinger died last season. I don't know anything about this show. <laughs> he uh, what? <laughs> sorry, spoilers for last season of Game of Thrones. Here's here's um I don't have any I don't have any like protected faves, like I need them to live or whatever. Um here's here's my only wish. That everyone asking right now who will sit on the Iron Throne at the end of Game of Thrones. We'll know that by the end of Game of Thrones, that is that was not the question. 
Does that make sense? Like that, that the, the dragons will melt. The uh, zombie dragon will melt the Iron Throne, and it doesn't, doesn't even need to be literal. It's just sort of like that's what the first book is about. The first book is a Game of Thrones. I, I'm still salty about the fact that the HBO's hashtag campaign for the final season is for the throne. When I'm like, it's not about the throne anymore. <laughs> like that's not the point. That's the iconography of the show, but it's not the point. So like either yeah, a dragon literally melts the throne. That would be great. Or um, you know something else. But I just don't think like insert name here sits on Iron Throne is a satisfying like no salt on Richard's prediction for Sansa because I like that. But like that that is not what we're headed towards, you know. It does seem like if anyone ends up sitting on it, it will be a Pyrrhic victory. Right. Yes. Although we've had that with uh, Cersei already. But, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. yeah, So there's there's a certain amount of repetition. I just want to figure out what happened in Bayonne. When George R. R. Martin was growing up, that made him so interested in eunuchs and incest. That's all. That's all. It I'm all comes back to Jersey. For what happened in Bayonne, Mike's new <laughs> podcast miniseries. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of both uh, in the show. It has recently yeah. become clear to me. It seems um, like a I am. I am like. I'm a Tyrion stan. I don't. I feel seems entirely likely that Tyrion will end up. Um, somebody, it was like the New York Post or somebody had this thing. I read it somewhere. They were like, doesn't it seem like Tyrion's going to end up in some great act of sacrifice and not have anything good happen to him at the end? It does seem likely, but I don't know. I love Tyrion. I'm a big Danny uh, fan. And, and weirdly, like, I really just love Jon Snow. I know it's kind of like a very basic ass thing to do, but like, I just, I just root for the guy. This is a constant thing, like where Mike Hogan apologizes to me for liking Jon Snow and Daenerys, and I'm like, "That's fine." <laughs> they are the heroes <laughs> of the show, I think. It's just not interesting or anything, but I'm just—that's how I feel. That is my, my actual feeling about the show. My cooler, more interesting take is that um, Jamie and Brienne are the real heroes of the show. Well, but no, but in all seriousness, uh, I, I think there's nothing. I, Mike's take is uh, 100% interesting. I think what is true, though, is that the amount of track that the show has laid towards whatever Jamie and Brienne get to do in this final season is so much more rich and long simmering than John and Daenerys met last year, literally. You know what I mean? Like, but Jamie and Brienne, which is starts in season two and like comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes like that is, and it's not even like a romantic or sexual thing. I think it's just sort of like a, it has to do with the growth of Jamie Lannister, which is something that I care weirdly a lot about. Um, and, and I know George R. R. Martin cares a lot about Jamie and Brienne as well. And it, that, it, got a little screwed in the middle of the series when they decided not to do zombie Catelyn Stark, which is what the Jamie and Brienne storyline revolves around in the books. And they decided not to do it. And so they send like Brienne has to watch for a candle in a tower for an entire season, you know? So like right. that, that <laughs> happens, but, um, and Jamie has to go to Dorne. Like they're like, uh, I don't know, send them this way, but, but they're coming back together. Right. Cause Jamie's headed to Winterfell. So they're coming back together this season. That's, something that I'm excited to see the payoff uh, for. So The Tyrion, Braun, Jamie, um, and uh, Brienne, and Arya and the Hound could be an interesting like wheel of fate mm-hmm. going on. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of great possibilities. It's going to be fun. I think the saddest thing will be that at the end of it, the, most of the possibilities will be foreclosed. Yeah, it is more fun talking about what might happen to these favorite characters than probably watching them get picked off one by one in the final season. Yeah, and weird to think that it's all been shot and probably close to being edited. 
Oh, you know, like there's so many after effects on Game of Thrones now that they're like they're still working on it, like right up until the week before it airs, basically. Right. So, right. Um, right. yeah. Uh, one other thing that I want to say. Oh, a, a little tidbit. I don't know. Like, let's let's get a little little gossipy on this on this podcast. I just want to alert listeners to this. If you didn't already know this, Jerome Flynn and Lita Headey like will not be in the same room together ever. <laughs> so Jerome Flynn, who plays Braun. Jerome Finn, who plays Braun, Lena Headey plays Cersei. So if you will notice, there's ah. never been a Cersei and Braun scene, despite the fact that Braun has a lot to do with the Lannister family. So uh, keep keep an eye out for that in the final the final season. Um, why is that? I think they dated, honestly, and it went sour. I believe that that's the story. So, but they will not be in the same room together. So internal drama. Um, we will probably spend the next six weeks uh, resisting the urge to just talk about Game of Thrones every week on this podcast. So certainly this won't be the last word. But yes, you should listen to Still Watching and subscribe now if you want to hear Richard and Joanna talk a lot more about it. And uh, and subscribe to Vanity Fair, right? So you can get Joanna's coverage. Joanna, you've been uh, beating that drum really effectively for us. Don't let the paywall stop you. Your dragon cannot take down the paywall. Subscribe. We have a really good sale going on right now. Go subscribe. It's totally worth it. Mike and I will have so much fun Thrones coverage for you. You know, Ritual will probably write a thing or two if he wants to, whatever. It'll be brilliant. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, come, come join us. Join us in this final watch. Join us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Richard, now we're going to share the interview that you did with Alex Ross Perry, who is the director of many films. The latest one is Her Smell, which premiered at the Toronto Film Festival last fall. And I feel like it was one of those movies that everyone knew it wasn't going to be coming out for the Oscars that fall. So it kind of was like bubbling under the radar, but everyone saw it was kind of raving about Elizabeth Moss in it. Um, can you just like set up Her Smell for people who might want to catch it? Yeah, it's a fascinating movie that's, I mean, I guess you could say loosely is, you know, mirrors in some ways the life of Courtney Love when she was a, you know, at the height of her music fame or the kind of waning of, of that height. But I, I, but I don't think it's specifically that it, about her. It's just that's kind of the, the closest comparison point. It's about a, a, a woman who's the leader of a band who is very well respected but also a complete mess because of substance abuse. Um, and it's told in a sort of not quite a triptych, but it's just that they're certain, you know, broken up into different parts. Um, but the continuum throughout all that is this Elizabeth Moss performance, which is striking. I mean, I, I, I knew that she was a good actress from, you know, Mad Men and Handmaid's Tale and uh, Top of the Lake, but this is a whole different other side of her that um, is, you know, I think it's one of those things kind of like Natalie Portman and Vox Lux where some people are going to love it, I love it, some people are going to be like, absolutely not. I don't think there will be a lot of middle ground people who are like, Elizabeth Moss is fine. Um, so I wanted to talk to Perry about this movie. It's kind of a departure for him about what, you know, what, what the casting process was like, I mean, he'd worked with Moss before and, uh, you know, just kind of pick his brain about where the hell this movie came from, because when people see it, which they really should, you'll see that it is a singular type of film. It's a hard sit for part of it, but it's really rewarding by the end. All right. Let's listen to your conversation with Alex Ross Perry. 
Well, I'm really excited to be sitting across the table in the studio right now from a writer-director who I have long admired uh, and also been a fan of his other podcast appearance. So it's, it's fun to have him on our podcast, Alex Ross Perry. Thank you for being here. Really thank appreciate you. it. Um, so we have you here to talk mostly about this film called Her Smell, uh, which is out this week uh, in New York and L.A. and I think is having a wider release in the coming weeks. Is that right? Um, I think, yeah, I, I think L.A. is the following week. Oh, okay. I, I don't know if this okay. is coming immediately. Right. Um, but the film has been seen before because it was at the Toronto Film Festival uh, where it got, uh, you know, a lot of great reviews. And uh, it, the film star, Elizabeth Moss, people were kind of chattering about her. And then I finally got to see it uh, a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, I guess. And I was really, you know, I had sort of skimmed the reviews, but I I didn't really still know what to expect. And... I was totally blown away. I mean, it's I think, an extraordinary film. And I think it's, it's maybe kind of a dumb question, but I just wanted to ask you, like, where the heck did this movie come from? Because having seen previous work of yours, I see DNA, you know, shared in her smell, but it feels like a different sort of Alex Ross Perry movie. Well, there's always some part of each one is kind of a pivot away from the other one. And the previous movie, Golden Exits, was a very calm, quiet movie. And even in the in the completion of that, I was already thinking the next one ought to be a very loud, crazy movie. And each one of the movies up until this has like a sequence in it that's this kind of choreographed, blocked party sequence that's always kind of chaos. And we just end up rehearsing it shooting it five or six times and then cutting it together and making it feel exciting. And those always were my favorite sequences in each movie. So then I thought, well, maybe we do a whole movie like that because that's always my favorite part. And then kind of in tandem with that, there was this idea kind of predating the notion of the next movie should be big and crazy of a character that came to me just looking for another Lizzie collaboration before Queen of Earth even came out, where I was working on a, a failed TV pilot that was set in the 90s. And I had kind of gotten reintroduced to a lot of music that I loved and even learning about how much music I never heard. And then at that same time, I was trying to make a, a different music movie, 60s music movie that failed for various reasons. And somehow the combination of those things, like a little bit of the failed music movie this 90s milieu, this character for Lizzie, the desire to do the big loud movie, it all just landed in this kind of shape. What was some of that music in particular that you revisited or discovered um, that helped inspire the movie? Well, it's a lot of the stuff that I think is kind of in the bones of the movie. I mean, I grew up listening to what was, you know, the alternative rock station. So I was really just listening to everything from stuff I'd missed entirely, like social distortion which I had never heard any of except for what was on the radio, and I couldn't believe how much great music I had missed. And it was just really kind of exciting because I had kind of come to New York for college and then, like a lot of people, move away from what you loved and cared about. And I was listening to new music and important music, so to speak, and things you were supposed to like. And then all of a sudden, it's like 2015, and I haven't listened to what was my favorite music for 10 years in 15 years and it kind of all got to come back to me as a you know like a weird inspiration like a lot of movies people always think 
This ought to be inspired by movies. Movies should be inspired by movies. But movies inspired by a CD, movies inspired by a play, a book, these are all valid things in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, thinking about you come, going to college and sort of forgetting about the music you'd liked, but then realizing later, well, those people were still recording, they were still putting stuff out, you know, and I think that there is that in her smell, because this is a, um, a character played by Elizabeth Moss, who, I don't want to say that she's at the sort of denouement of a career or anything, but she's at a point where she's sort of past, um, I guess, what you could call a prime, partly because of substance issues. Was the substance aspect of the drug aspect of it always a part of the narrative in your head? You know, is that how it started? Yeah, the whole, the the initial presentation to her of a character via text message was mother, rock star, addict. Mm -hmm. So that was always there. It seemed like the right vessel to sort of create the character inside. But not because I have the experience with it, but because it's appropriate and because of the characters and the way that they end up always being written in the movies um, and then some of the response to them, you know, if someone says in your movies and your writing, the characters can be very abrasive, very confrontational, very unlikable. I always I always want to push that as far as possible, not in that direction, but in saying like, well, what if all those traits are because of this? And I've in one degree or another. What if those traits are because this person is seriously depressed? What if those traits are because this person is going through an extreme crisis? In this movie, it's what if all those traits are because this person is out of control with a disease that has completely taken over their life? And if all of that behavior and all of that attitude is because of her substance abuse, are people still going to say, boy, this character is really hard to take? Are they going to say, boy, this character is really sick. Right. Yeah. I, you know, and a comparison that has been drawn not by you, but by people who've seen the film is to Courtney Love uh, because there's a, you know, a young daughter sort of at the center of things. And um, I mean, obviously her smell is not the same story as that. Was she on your mind at all when you were making, writing the movie or is that not a comparison you like? Well, I don't, I mean, there were hundreds of, of bands and records and women and men on my mind you know, like, none of them are 51% of the character. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, you can... I mean, of course, Courtney Love is one of hundreds of women up on the walls for hair and, you know, makeup, inspiration and attitude and everything, but there's 99 others. I think it's just because people only know her. Right. Like, no one knows the names of any other. This is this is like Chuck Klosterman's theory that reggae has been reduced only to Bob Marley. Mm-hmm. Like women in alternative rock have been have has already in 25 years been reduced to one person, which is great it, it, for the historical value of that person. But there's so much else. Like if there's a continuum, like I don't know how well you know Velvet Goldmine. Not too well, but I'll I'll, I'll follow you. Um, like that movie, half is just David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Right. Like literally, and I can tell this just as a fan, not as like an encyclopedic fan of them or of glam rock. And then you read about it and it's like, this character is David Bowie's first manager who he abandoned. And this character is his first wife and this and that. But I don't know any of that when I'm watching the movie. But then the movie says, well, what if at the height of his fame, he disappeared and then 
this movie is about a journalist with the structure of Citizen Kane trying to find what happened to this guy. So it takes something that is so close to something that we all know and then just does whatever it wants with it, which is kind of one thing I'm trying to do with the script. So there is no, but in this case, there is no like, this is Bowie and this is Iggy Pop. And on the other end is like Boogie Nights or The Master or Phantom Thread or that style of writing where it's like, it's just a little of everything. It's kind of this, you know, Phantom Thread, it's kind of this designer, but it doesn't really have any of that person's details. And then there's this other character who that person didn't have. And then there's this whole storyline that that character never experienced. And But it's always just like, oh, but the writer of this movie just viewed this character and these types of people as the avenue for this particular story. So, like... This is m- closer to that, I would say. Right. Did you consult with any musicians um, when you were either writing the film or making it, or did you kind of just do your research and then go on your own? No, I mean, I didn't want to because yeah. for the same reason that I'm talking about is that the closer I looked at any one, the more of that one threatened to get in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I sat down with two people and just took tons of notes and listened to everything they said... And then I went back and thought about the next draft of the script. It would only be informed by those two women's experiences rather than my preference, which would be 50 or zero. Yeah. Um, because then, like, you know, again, like in terms of, you know, Corny Love or any other of the, you know, women who are making this music, like there's nothing that was ever going to work of like, I want this thing that happened in the movie. Right. Right. Like, if you do that, then, you know, like, in Boogie Nights, he doesn't do the Wonderland killings. He does this thing that's, like, kind of a heist, but it, like, has a young Asian boy and there's fireworks. And, like, it takes the idea that this guy ends up in this kind of a situation and just does something that is not the thing that we all kind of know happened. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like this could have happened. But it didn't. So, like, talking to anyone, I think, would have colored it. So even in my research, I didn't – I tried not to read too many personal memoirs or personal, you know, autobiographies of women in this era just because I was too nervous to just be like, oh, this is exactly what I want. This story of this person in this one band is what the movie needs to be. So when when you were having conversations with Elizabeth Moss about the role – how does that conversation happen? I mean, did you just kind of let her go with the script and she came back to you with this version of this character or was it a really like, you know, beat by beat collaborative effort to to build to what we see on screen? Well, the last couple of movies are always written with somebody in mind. Mm-hmm. But this was the first one that was just like, it's just written for her. It's written for her voice. It's written for her face. It's written for her physical presence. There's, you know, it's written for her eye color. It's written for her height. Like, all these things are just baked in. So in the writing of it, knowing that this was the deal, I really just felt like I was just watching an existing performance and then just writing down what was happening in it. So then the material in her hands becomes like, it's all just tailored to you doing this. It's all a challenge, but there's nothing in here that I wrote not thinking, how will you do this? Um... But then the chaos of it was just kind of up to her on the day. Right. Like the controllable nature of how to replicate a performance often enough to film a movie for a month was not something that we could have predicted or planned on. It's very different from the way 
most actors work, mm-hmm. you know, to do one 30-page scene for three days in a row and then move on to another one. So the conversations were always just kind of me saying, you can't fail. This is just yours. It's in, it's in your wheelhouse. And everything you do is just exactly what's supposed to happen. There is no, like, degrees of, like, oh, she's kind of not doing it because, like, it's just yours. It, so right. it was, it, there was really no way to, like, analyze it. That sounds so freeing for an actor. I bet that was, you know, I bet she was excited for that kind of opportunity. And I I wanted to talk about the, I mean, I think we have to talk about the chaos of it all. You know, you mentioned that you had done these sort of party scenes in your other films, and then you said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make a whole movie out of that sort of, you know, it's chaos, but it's also beautifully choreographed. I mean, it's obviously specifically made. Um, what was that like to make a whole movie, almost a whole movie, uh, in that sort of mode? Was it exhausting, or what did you kind of get out of it, uh, you know, day to day? It was actually, I mean, unfortunately for, you know, storytelling's sake, it was really easy. Not that filming it was easy, because everything was a challenge, but we spent a year kind of creating the parameters of the production to make it so controllable and streamlined, which is something that I think most people neglect. Most people, when they're putting together a movie, be it $20,000 or $20 million, have no creative impulses on how to structure things, on how to spend money here instead of there, how to balance the schedule in a way that's not just logistically correct, but also creatively inspiring for the crew and for the actors. But we had the opportunity to do that. So... You know, like starting eight or nine months out, we were saying like each act will have a full day of rehearsal. So there'll be a a day every four days where we don't film anything and we just plan and rehearse and everyone on the crew watches and thinks and then we come in the next day and we do 12 pages. And that's kind of the chaos of it. And, you know, I wanted to not have lunch breaks. I hate having the break in the middle of the day. Everyone kind of gets out of the headspace. Some people get tired. Some people, you know, get on the phone. They get bad news. I said we can't have breaks. We have to just spend a whole day basically not working but thinking. And then three days where I don't want to see anybody taking a break because the actors won't, and that will be the performance that they give because now they're actually really worked up. They're sweaty they're exhausted they've been doing this for six hours straight without an hour or two hours in the middle of things and the whole the everything about it was just like can we do it like this so that every day everything is easy except for what's happening in between action and cut but if we've done our work that will not be easy but it'll at least be predictable and controlled and consistent yeah i mean i i think it's people can watch a movie like this and say, oh, they just like all were, you know, in a room and the camera was just sort of wandering aimlessly around. But like, I don't really think that it can't really work exactly like that, right? I mean, there has to be a sort of, um, I mean, I guess a day of rehearsal, a sort of parameter that you're following. I mean, it's kind of the irony that like in order to film, to capture chaos on, on film, it actually kind of has to be the opposite behind the camera. Is that is that true or? Yeah, no, no one who... Uh like, has been on set would think that. This is just a mistake that people in public audiences get tripped up on because it's like the movie is so chaotic and there's so much happening and there's scenes in rooms that are small that have 8, 9, 10, 11 characters in them. And every single one of them is talking and moving. And it's one of those things where, like, shooting it and editing it, 
I just know, like, we'll never get credit for how hard this actually was. I'll never get credit for the fact that every single utterance of this dialogue is scripted because it just seems like madness. And this room is such a decrepit mess that the production team will never get credit for how much work they put into this because it just looks like some backstage hellhole. They'll never get credit for the fact that this was constructed from nothing. And, yeah, I mean, like, it's just the steady cam alone has to be measured for every shot, every take. So we, we have to know where every actor is going to land or move so that the, the steady cam operator and the focus puller are tracking them. So there's so much rehearsal to then saying we're going to shoot this six-minute take five times in a row until, like, the sweat on people's faces is real. There's no way to do it. And then, yeah, I mean, this has kind of been a thing since even Listen Up, Philip, which was similarly kind of blocked and rehearsed in terms of letting the actors create the scene and then following them consistently. But the style of that movie, which is a very shaky handheld camera, suggests to people we just are kind of winging it. But it's as precise as can be. Yeah, yeah. And then I don't want to spoil anything for um, the audience, but later in the film, one of the acts of the film is quieter and it's more still and it involves fewer people. Uh, shifting to that, was that kind of a jarring, was it was it a relief in a way? Or, or you know, how do you kind of plant this very different sort of paced and energy scene in the middle of all that frenzy? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the only act that we didn't rehearse. We had, we, that was the only act. There was no time to rehearse. But we knew that, you know, like, the irony is that, as you're kind of suggesting, like, this is the kind of filmmaking that people actually think takes time. Right. Like, perfectly composed, locked-off shots where the camera doesn't move for four minutes. And people sit perfectly still. This is something people actually think you have to deliberately plan, whereas that one had the least planning. Because to us, also we filmed it last. Those were the last three days of the shoot. To us, like, after everything we'd already been through, you know, one house location with just three actors, like, this was kind of a, a, a lovely little postscript to the actual challenges of the movie. Um, but it was something I'd never done before. So the whole challenge was like, I don't know if we can just set a shot like this and hold it for two minutes, because I've never tried that. It requires a lot of patience and a lot of trust. But again, like we just thought about it and talked about it. And at that point, we had done everything else. So we had nothing left to try other than minimalism. So is Elizabeth's performance in the film what you envision? I mean, I guess you were saying, you know, it's kind of just whatever happened on the day. But like when you first kind of were starting to conceptualize this movie or this character, what, did, did she do anything that surprised you that, that we see on film? Or is it kind of everything what you expected it to be? Well, it's all surprising because I don't expect or think about anything. The only yeah. thing I'm expecting is that she's going to memorize all the words. <laughs> right. Beyond that, I really don't know, um, which is sort of why the collaboration works for us at this point because that kind of all she's going to do is memorize the lines and then come in and figure the rest out. It's very similar to how I work where, like, all I know is that, like, this whole sequence is going to be like this, and they're out here, and they're in there, and then it's chaos, and then so-and-so happens. But, like, I don't really know the details until we're doing it because I'd rather find those details than create them by myself and then force everyone else to understand them. So everything is a surprise. It's a surprise what she's doing, but then it becomes a surprise in, like, how we want to cover it. And then 
she moves slower than we thought, so now we're adjusting, or she moves faster than we thought, so now this whole scene is different. And then, yeah, I mean, everything is just kind of up to spontaneity. But then there's little things, like there's a moment that's easy to talk about, where like, in the second act of the movie, there's like a very poppy song played by the younger band, and in the script, it was written um, that Becky like dances around and likes the song a lot. And she had been watching some drug movies. She was talking about Goodfellas and Boogie Nights. And she was like, what we haven't really seen yet is that kind of like dazed, druggy feel. So far, it's all very high energy. What if instead of dancing, I just sit here and we play it out like you don't know what's going to happen. And then when we go back to the script, to the words, everything's the same, but the meaning is different because what's happened during the performance is not what's written. And this was exactly my challenge to all the actors, was like, we're not going to change any of the lines. Everything is going to be delivered as written and we'll figure that out, but any physical things you want to do, any body language, any props, like these are the ways we're going to create the characters. And this was a perfect thing where I was like, yeah, that's much better. Sitting down and looking in that kind of like Jesse's girl, Mark Wahlberg, Boogie Nights facial expression. <laughs> like, this is actually a thing we haven't done yet, and this is what the movie wants right now. And this is much better than what's written. But then when we go back to the dialogue, then the, the, whole, the whole thing is the same or better. So working in that way, I would imagine that you have to assemble a particular kind of cast, a cast that's willing to do that. I mean, past Elizabeth, who you have a working relationship with. Can you talk to me a little bit? Because, you know, there are great performances in the film uh, from Agnes Dane in particular, uh, Dan Stevens, Virginia Madsen's great, Ashley Benson. How did the casting process work past Elizabeth? Well, it's the kind of thing that has happened in one form or another with all of the movies in the last few years. Um, like everyone sees the script and they know that she's in and then people can picture themselves in it and they really want to be a part of it. So we're, I'm always very, very lucky to have a script that goes out with, in the case of something like Listen Up, Philip, like Jason Schwartzman's playing this role and now everybody can see the movie and they want to be in it. Or in Queen of Earth, Lizzie's playing this role or in this movie, Lizzie's playing this role and people are like, okay, well, that's going to be exciting. I want to get in the room with that. So then you just kind of end up with your pick of so many exciting options. And then the conversation for them was like, look, this is going to be like theater. We're going to be doing these long scenes over and over. We're not going to be doing shots ever. We're going to be doing whole sequences and entire constructed moments that go on for four, five, six minutes. It's never going to be one line, one line. So you just have to be prepared. And if you're not, that's okay. We have rehearsal time built in. And then it's just chemistry. Like for the something she, Agnes and Gail, who plays drums, it's just like, how do they look with Lizzie? What is their vibe in terms of the chemistry, which we will never, you know, we don't know because we're not getting them together. We're not doing chemistry reads or auditions. And most importantly, like, does this just seem like some band that I would have seen on TV? And then the Acre Girls were the same. It's like they need to represent something, so they need to look a certain way in relation to themselves, in relation to each other, in relation to the era, in relation to Lizzie. They all just kind of have to, they just have to be able to picture it. Um, and we always get very lucky. Like Virginia Madsen is someone that we were so lucky to have. She kind of looks like Lizzie. Mm-hmm. 
seems like good mother-daughter casting. But then I, you know, Skyped with her and she had some very interesting ideas and some little things in act three of the movie that immediately kind of made it better. And just listening to her, not even suggestions, just her questions during our Skype resulted in some changes that I think totally fixed some problems that I think otherwise we wouldn't have fixed. And they would have just been problems that we had to live with. So, you know, great actors like that come in for five, six days, but they can really contribute a lot if you ask them and let them. You have a really wonderful breadth of interest in film from what we might, one might call high to low or whatever, you know, however you want to categorize it. Um, and, and not that it's a low movie at all. I really like the movie. But, you know, you worked on um, the script for Christopher Robin, which came out last summer. Um, I'm curious what that experience was like is sort of like lending your name to this kind of bigger project. Um, how did that sort of go for you? Did you, did you enjoy the experience? I did. Um, and I can only really sort of like refer back to my experiences with it, like as it pertains to the writing of Her Smell, because the two movies were written at the same time, largely. And what I enjoyed about it was just, I like finely tuned, massively invested in studio tentpole filmmaking. I always have, and I always will. So getting to sort of see how that's done was the biggest education I've ever had about my own work, about the art of script writing, about the production of Hollywood movies. And, you know, I compare it to like, like if you were just like a sort of self-taught chef and you opened up like a counter or a food truck and you made a name for yourself and you did okay. That's like me as an independent filmmaker. And then suddenly someone picks you to go on this like two or three year, in the case of that movie, over three year journey through France and Italy and Asia and everywhere you're going, you're tasting new foods and learning techniques. And you're like, oh, I'm really bad at what I do. Like I've made food that is edible and people like it, but I actually don't know the first thing about what I'm doing. I can just kind of present something that is good enough, but now it's really embarrassing to see how much I didn't know about how to do what I do. And working on that movie as a, just as a script was that. Like every time I would have a story talk with the producer, everything he would say, I would just kind of go like, God, that's so, that's so obvious. That is exactly what every Hollywood successful movie needs at the 30 minute mark. And God, that's so obvious. That's what every movie needs at the 50 minute mark. I wonder if I can apply these lessons to my own writing even though I'm writing not a classic three-act studio tentpole, but a five-act sort of messy epic with five long scenes, can I just take all these lessons where it's like, at this point, people really will want to check in on what this character is doing. At this point, people need to know that our main character realizes that they are wrong about something. And at this point, we need to see that our main character, despite knowing that they're wrong, still can't do the right thing. So I created that exact thing for Becky. Like her realization at the beginning of Act 4 when she sort of hit rock bottom and been in isolation is just a classic thing where like in a, you know, two-hour studio movie, like at the 70-minute mark, the character realizes they made a mistake, but they can't fix that until the 100-minute mark because then they have 
15 minutes to wrap it up. And I, tr- I just wanted to do the exact same thing structurally. So my experience with Disney was just like, God, this is so easy to just do things exactly right. But then you can do whatever you want with it. You can write whatever movie. Um, and yeah, I just learned everything. It just changed everything I knew about writing. And it was just really rewarding. That's fascinating. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it makes sense. I mean, in some senses, you, you feel like, oh, isn't that depressing that everything could be so reduced to, you know, here, hit this beat at 30, hit, you know, do this at 70 minutes. But as her smell beautifully demonstrates, you can have that in your mind while also building f- strange forms around that structure. I mean, it's just the loosest of kind of skeletons, right? I mean, is that sort of how you look at it? Or, or I mean, because... You know, a young screenwriter. You, you, I don't. Would you tell them like, yes, follow this this rigid formula, or is it more just like have, bear that kind of vaguely in mind when you sit down to write? I mean, there's no way to really like adhere to it unless you've spent three years like forcing mm-hmm. yourself to adhere to it. But if you just instinctually get and like movies, you already kind of know it in the way that you can already kind of buy food, cook it, and serve it to somebody. But there's just like uh, there's a sophistication to it that if you're cynical, it's like, yeah, but what's that for? Like some tent pole that is soulless and made by committee? And it's like, well, no, it's not. Like it's really made by people who like what they're doing. And most importantly, like they know what they're doing. So the other thing about it is like in terms of advice that it did teach me was like writing is nothing. Like you can write a 30-page sequence, turn it in on a Friday and be told on Monday – this is not right. We, we're just going to start the sequence. Let's do the sequence again. Let's just create this entire thing over. And previously as a writer, you were like, or I was like, well, that's kind of, no, that's, I mean, I did it. It's, it's good. Like I'll, I'll tinker with it, but it's pretty much there. And working for a studio for that long, especially when they're paying you, you're like, yeah, I'll start over. This is after all what they're paying me for. I'll just start this whole sequence from scratch. So in Christopher Robin, it was like, we know that on page 30, he enters the 100-acre wood. And we know that on page 50, he leaves. What we know happens in the middle is character. What we don't know what happens in the middle is plot and moments and story beats. And we probably wrote that sequence 40 times. And every time it was entirely different in terms of, like, who does he encounter first? What happens? What happens here? What happens there? But he still leaves on page 50. The only thing that matters is that he forgets his briefcase and then his friends have to bring it to him. So writing her smell was kind of like that, where I was like, I can just have these sequences where I can do whatever I want to act two. It doesn't really affect act one or act three because they all begin and end in the same place. It's not like if we change this, then nothing in the later one makes any sense. It just has to start with this and it has to end with this and then anything else that happens only gets us more or less credit in the bank and if it's more great and if it's less how do we then change the next thing so the lessons of writing on on christopher robin were just like it doesn't matter don't sweat it you're going to be writing this forever in the way that i was like writing new jokes on that movie after they shot it and like we were watching edits of it me and uh, allison schroeder the movie's co-writer like, we were just writing new jokes and new, like, ADR lines for the animals, like, four months before the movie came out. Like, in Her Smell, I was writing new little tidbits of dialogue and ADR lines, um, like, three weeks before we premiered it, just because we could get the actors back in, and I could keep adding little extra story moments, little extra 
someone's off camera, but we can have them yelling into the room just to show that there's like more anxiety happening. And then the lesson was just like writing, do it as long as you want. Don't ever be like, yeah, well, I already wrote that scene, so I'm not going to do it again. Because uh, you can and you should. So like writing her smell while getting all that Disney training was, I really think the only reason I could do something that was such a substantial script. Well, who would have guessed that her smell was <laughs> so inspired by Disney? Um, but, you know, uh, wherever it came from, I'm glad it, it, it exists. It's a really remarkable movie that I hope um, people will see. And Alex, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about it. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you for having me. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, we'll be back talking more Game of Thrones and everything else going on in this fascinating time for television and for movies. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, where if you get past the paywall, you can get all of the Game of Thrones coverage that you need to get through the next few weeks. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna? Jarothis. And Richard? Rylaws. And Mike had to go, but he's at Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best prediction for the end of the Cats movie goes to Katie Rich. If someone gets to, like, sail off and live in elf heaven, I'll take it. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.